Recovery Radio, where we discuss substance abuse treatment and recovery. You can listen live at blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio. Please note that the views and opinions of our hosts and guests are not necessarily the views of OCG, nor is it meant to replace professional advice or the advice of your physician. And now, here's our show, Roach on Recovery, with your host, I need to know who the top quarterback in college is right now. Who's coming out? Who's going to be the number one pick? Because we're battling the Cleveland Browns for that bad boy right now. Are we live? We're on the air? We... <laughs> oh, shoot. <laughs> it's been caught. Yeah, it's out there. Boy, what a what a depressing, depressing time almost halfway through the NFL season. For one of us, anyway. Yes, sir. Roach on recovery. We're going to get right into our not knock our sports talk out first and then get to our uh, topic. Um, all right, hit us up, man. Hit us up. Yeah, we got to do it. We got to do it. I don't want to, but we got to. There's only one question that needs to be asked here live because it's not worth discussing anything 49ers. Although, I will say... Indeed, indeed. Uh, Chip Kelly did announce today to the media that Colin Kaepernick will be starting this week in Buffalo. Uh, Blaine Gabbert. Blame Gabbert. (laughs) Blaine Gabbert has lost his job, uh, his starting position. But who cares about that? More importantly, if the Cowboys, I don't know, they're four and one now, so call it six and one. Does Romo get his job back? That's the question on the table. Ask me that when we do our show on the 25th. <laughs> it depends what happens this Sunday in Green Bay. Okay. Okay. You, <clears throat> you consider this a big test. Yep. For the young buck playing in Lambeau, whether it'll be a little more cold. He's looking at Aaron Rodgers on the other sideline. Get that game. All right. From the 2014 divisional. That's playoff. right. That's right. Okay. Payback game. So we'll see what happens. Then I'll, then I'll give you my take. All right. I like it. Romo, if you're out there and you're listening, your job's in jeopardy, my friend. You, you're, <laughs> it is out of your hands and squarely in the hands of the rookie. 
you have anything you want to add about your boys? What about your Jets and your Giants? They're uh, severely underwhelming. Di- I, no, I don't want to talk about them. Severely disappointed, <laughs> depressing. Um, so I don't want to talk about them until they uh, <laughs> at least win win a game. The last time we were on the air uh, was set up for the New York Metropolitans to take on the San Francisco Giants for a a one car a one game wild card get in. Uh, your thoughts on that game? Uh, I don't want to talk about that either because the Mets, New York Mets, let me down again. So I'm just all – it's nothing but – not to make light, but I'm just saying nothing but depression going around. Depression's in the air. Sports depression. It is indeed. It is indeed. Well, I, I like I said, I have nothing. I will say this. For anyone that's a sports fan of just of all the major sports in this country, we're coming up on the best time of the year for sports because you have – Baseball, basketball, football, yeah, that's true. and hockey all playing at the same time. Yeah, it's the only time of year that takes place. Yep. <clears throat> so. That is true. That is true indeed. And that's the one thing, I guess, although on the brink of elimination, our Giants are still in it. Yeah, holding on. Holding on. Keeping that curse going for those Chicago, <laughs> poor Chicago folks. <laughs> uh, my heart goes out to them. <laughs> and there you have it. So, um during our week off this month, as I said, our next show is on the 25th, uh, the second anniversary of the passing of the Monsignor William B. O'Brien yeah. will pass through while we're off the air. So I thought it'd be appropriate that we spend this show doing some reflections yeah. on his legacy and um, a little different from the first anniversary show. Okay. And the first show, which was the show right after he passed. Which That's, was, right. Was, That's right. That's right. An inaugural show. And we, we had bumped up the – we weren't going to start for like another month, but bumped it up because of yeah, that. Yeah, we were still in training camp. <laughs> we weren't ready to go yet. That's but, right. Uh, but we had to go live. So um, The timing of this is very interesting because some of the things I want to discuss just match up with some of the things he talked about. Hmm. Um, Last week, let's just say I wasn't a happy camper. Hmm, Okay. And as I was thinking about it over the weekend... And how much it tied into one of the Monsignor's single most important themes. He had many themes, okay? But if someone were to say, name the, the, the number one thing from your personal experience that you heard the Monsignor stress repeatedly. And that, for me, would be the cleanliness of the therapeutic environment. Yeah. And... Since that was, you know, rammed home, not just by him from the top, but from all of the, the ones, the, the mentors that I encountered. The Eddie Hills of the world. The Eddie Hills of the world. The Richie Falzones of the world. The Richie Calzone. Falzone. All right. So, I know, it still sounds like a good fellow. Yeah, so, yeah, I yeah. like it. I like it. I, and I used to 
kiddingly call him Richie Calzone. <laughs> um, and there are many others who, you know, that was first and foremost. I mean, if there was something, if there was anything going on in the facility, you know, the solution was clean it. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. Clean, clean the facility, clean your belly. That was the solution. And, and no, matter, no matter what the problem was, something someone messed up on the pull board, <laughs> GI. That's how we solved it. <laughs> that's it. And I, I'll interject just just to paint the picture with a little more context for those listeners out there. Um, the host is not lying when he when he says that the cleanliness of the facility comes to mind as priority number one for him. Uh, I'm sure I could have run some seminars in my day where at least five clients coming out of my seminar said that I said the magic words and their lives have been saved. And if one of their bedrooms is unclean and he's running through the facility, uh, it doesn't matter how many lives I saved on that day. uh, Those rooms better get cleaned ASAP. So, yes, the cleaning, always the number one thing on the mind of the host here. So I want to take some time out to read an excerpt. I've read it before, a couple of years ago. I remember this. Of a memo that was written by the Monsignor to the executive council. It wasn't written to the staff at large. Yeah. It was written to the executive council to then be filtered down to the staff at large. And I've, Taken a little literary license and changed some wording, et cetera, just for the sake of because I even in the my memo to staff, mm-hmm. I write, write underneath my heading that this is partially excerpted from a letter written to the executive council by the Monsignor. Mm. So he talks first about the premise and then the contract. Okay. We talk a lot in the TC about the you know contracts, negative, positive contracts. That's right. So here he's just talking about the contract. <clears throat> so we start with the premise. In order to foster recovery, self-worth, and full responsibilities for one's life, we, and he's speaking about Daytop at that time, so I'm just saying we, have always contended that the physical surroundings must glisten with the hope and pride that is central to the task of rebuilding human lives. So last week, I'm going to try and be as vague as I can, but to get my point across, in a meeting we were talking about an incident that had transpired or a number or a number of incidents that had transpired. And during the course of the conversation, now I'm just sitting and just listening. I'm all ears hearing almost in the background during the course of the conversation. I, my ears, my antennas immediately shoot up satellite dishes, pop out. <laughs> you start to hear a little swirl noise. <laughs> because a staff person mentioned that very cavalierly, I might add, that, yeah, the GI on Saturday, you know, hasn't been done properly in a few months. And the conversation just continued about the incident. 
and I immediately applied the Roadrunner brakes to the conversation. <laughs> I said, excuse me, hold it, stop, wait a second, wait a second. Can you repeat what you just said? And the staff person repeated that, yeah, I was told that the side of AGI has not been happening, going on in the manner that it's supposed to. And I said, well, then we can't discuss anything else further. We can't discuss anything. I don't care about the incidents. I don't care about anything else. I care about the fact that GI is not happening the way it's supposed to happen. Because everything starts with that. Everything. And so I had to, and I, during the course of me speaking about it, I kind of referenced this because we have some new staff present. A number of new staff that were present, okay, and who don't, yeah, don't know, fully understand the context yeah, the intricacies of, why of why that's important and right. how it ties together everything, right? <clears throat> so it's a very nuanced deal. So I took time out to explain the importance of why the incidents we were discussing are no longer important. <laughs> Not that I don't yeah. care, right? But everything else ceases. But when you mention that the GI isn't happening the way it's supposed to. Beds being pulled out, dressers being pulled out, floors being mopped. I mean, the whole night. Right. Right? And just to give some context, the, the reason why we were having that conversation was because the incident was occurring during GI. And so I'm wondering to myself as I'm listening, well, that's well, like one of the most busiest times during the facility. Yeah, people are moving to the mop closet, the broom closet, back and forth. Hey, let me get the dust mop. Who's got a clean mop bucket? Yeah, everybody's hustling and bustling about, whether you're doing the room GI, facility GI, et cetera. A lot of hustle and bustle. It's movement. Right. So it's very, it would be very rare that there would not be, there would only be one person around in an area at a time during the GI because everyone's out, you know, doing everything and, you know, Going here and there, like you explained. Yeah. And so I was curious as to, well, how could this happen without anyone seeing or noticing during a GI? And that's when the person mentioned, oh, well, you know, well, the GI really hasn't been happening the way it should have been. And that set me off from there. Okay. So <clears throat> continuing on in the memo, a slovenly, that's an interesting word. That's a good word. A uh, usage, word usage that he came up with. A slovenly kept facility encourages mediocrity. A smartly maintained facility, that's a generational word, smartly, mm-hmm. maintained facility inspires perfection and striving. Mm. So I was making that point. To the persons who were new that and I made it in this raw fashion coming from crack houses shoot up spots you name it and we want them to experience an environment that is the exact opposite of that mm-hmm. of what they've been used to whether they're coming from jail different from even jail and prior to jail, wherever they were living out their addiction, we want this environment to be the exact opposite of that, a representation of something totally different. 
And so that's why we stress so much the cleanliness of the environment as the first order of business to totally give them a different experience of what they've been doing for the last three, four, five, 10, 15 years. Otherwise, if we were just to let garbage pile up, dust balls pile up, spider webs pile up, and what have you, before you know it, it looks just like a crack house. Yeah, the environment has not changed from where they came from. It looks from. no different than where they were. So, you know, that's a simple explanation of what we're trying to accomplish in terms of the environmental effect. First off, you're walking into a building that looks nothing like that you've been in, you've experienced where you've just come from. It's clean, it smells clean, looks clean, it's clean. Back to the memo. In so many ways, the condition of the facility speaks eloquently of the quality of what goes on there, i.e. the clinical process. So I have an additional take on that. I've told you this story. So it's not news. I'm not breaking any news. What year are we in? So it's about 10 years old now. Okay. You're aware that I have, I asked a director to resign. Yes. Over this issue. Yes. 10 years ago. You're aware that said director, would you agree, should have known better? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. You are aware that <clears throat> said host purposely <laughs> parked his car in a certain spot for two straight weeks to walk by the front of the facility to see if said item sitting on top of the bushes had been removed from in front of the facility. And the reason said host parked his car in the same said spot for the same said two weeks was because he knew the same said director was a smoker and walked past the same said item at least a day to go to his smoking spot. That's right. So that means he passed it four times, going and coming back, going and coming back. So I said, I want to see how long that said item stays there while the director of the facility walks past it. Yeah. Because if the director of the facility accepts that, then I can only imagine what is going on inside the facility. Absolutely. So I patiently waited my two weeks, parked <laughs> said car in the same <laughs> said spot, walked past said item, maybe 10 straight said days, still there. So it told me a couple of things. By the way, said director did not wear glasses, so would not, not blame it on said bad could, eyesight. Exactly. <laughs> so it said to me that two things. One, the attitude was that it was okay and acceptable and that were they GIing in front of the facility? Now, you know me for years. I've always said we, in terms of because of where we're located, 
were not buried up in the mountains like the daytop facilities were. But even then, even there, it was you work front of the property, back, back because yeah. that's what people see first. So we're on a main thoroughfare, a main boulevard, the frontage of our, our main center. And so people are walking by, and we got a KFC next door, a shopping plaza next door. And so people walk past, and yeah, what message are you sending what, what to are the we, community? What are we sending to the yeah? What's the message? <clears throat> so you work hard to keep your frontage area tight. So they can't. They cannot say, "Oh, look at that drug treatment facility over there." They're you know they don't even trim Lob, their bushes yeah. and clean their garbage and stuff like that. So this guy walks past it for two weeks, and I arrange a meeting with him and throw that at him, and, you know, I'm dumbfounded. I'm dumbfounded. If this was not a daytop person, meaning that they didn't know the daytop way, mm-hmm. the daytop methods and what have you, and, 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 and how strongly and firmly we were about the facility being tight, above all, everything else. If this was not that type of person that I believe should have known that, it would not have been a different story, different ending. But it made it even, you know, worse. Right. Okay. And he ended up, uh, you know, I asked him to resign, and he took up the offer to resign. Um, so the attitude... is the attitude of the people in the facilities reflected. So once, once you understand the, uh, you know, how important it is to have a clean facility, and the Monsignor emphasized this repeatedly to the point that Arias has to put it in a letter in 2006 mm-hmm. to the executive council. Now, I don't know what prompted this. I don't know if it was an experience that he had that it's, you know, in terms of his travels around to the facilities like he used to do, that he started to see some slippage. Hmm. Okay. And that maybe the, uh, the current caretakers were not holding up the standard, so to speak. Okay. I, yeah, have, I, don't, I have no idea what, what prompted the letter. Um, but so be it. So back to the memo. When there is a breakdown in the maintenance slash clinical contract, then the mindset of the clients living at the facility and the staff sets in like this is a hotel not a treatment facility, not what he envisioned daytop, a daytop facility should look like. Mm-hmm. When he would be on his way up to, or word, word, word on the street, Monsignor's coming up to the lake in Parksville tomorrow or Thursday. Let's say it was Tuesday. It's coming Thursday. You know, all business stops. <laughs> yeah, that's right. All hands on deck. You know, the mops have come out. The floor, floor, floor towels come out. The wax comes out. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. the floor wax comes out and the window cleaners come out. I mean, it's like, 
you know, yeah. like the family's having company for the holidays, you know. <laughs> That's right. Put your best foot forward. Yep. You you did not want to be at Swan Lake or Parksville and have the Monsignor visiting, and 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 after the visit, he's he's long gone, and have the director come in and say, <laughs> "Yeah, the Monsignor wanted to know what was that spot on that window over there." Right. <laughs> <laughs> Who's on the housekeeping yes, team? We exaggerate, of course, but the point was made. So again, when there is a breakdown in the maintenance slash clinical contract, then the mindset of living at the Daytop Hotel sets in with the shirking of housekeeping and house maintenance responsibilities and overall reduction of clinical output, marked deterioration of the facility, and poor retention. Hmm. To this day, that still holds true in my mind. It still holds true in my mind. If I was walking in the doors of a treatment facility and it was unkept and in disrepair, et cetera. I completely agree. But what would my attitude be? I, I completely agree. And, and as, a, as an employee of the organization and someone who comes of cut from the daytop cloth as you speak – like I was X amount of years ago, it, it goes beyond that too. Okay, so you look at the individual and say, okay, the individual coming in off the street or from jail, if you're observing the place and say that's you and it, it looks, yeah, it looks dirty, it looks uncared for, that, you know, even if I'm on the fence about wanting to get clean, is this the place where I would want to do it, where where it looks like this? Now, the flip side of the coin, and this is a s- smaller percentage of people, you might get some who don't care. They're used to it. They don't even notice it because of how they've been living. But then as an employee of the organization, you have to think about this individual's relatives or, or family or the people that are going to come and visit this this client who care about this client and want what's best for them. And they come in to visit on a Sunday and see holes in the furniture and whatever else they might see in in an unkept looking facility. Is that where they want their loved one? Uh, If we, and we do quite frequently and not the Monsignor, but giving tours or having people come to the facility who have some sort of vested or otherwise interest in what it is we do, Mm -hmm. whether it be the County or or judges or people who are going to place their clients, Yeah. yeah, politicians, and they come through and, oh, you know, let's show you, we we open up a door to one of the rooms. This is where your client might be sleeping. And you open up the door and it looks like a bomb, a bomb went off in there. Mm-hmm. Oh, man, I, I, as an employee, and I've been in the situation before, your stomach just sinks. Mm-hmm. You're embarrassed. You're ashamed. But it all ties back to a lot of what the Monsignor's touching on in this memo is that, that's where it starts. So, yes, it, it looks bad to outside entities. It looks back bad on the loved ones who come to visit. It might even look bad to the client coming in the door. Uh, this is not somewhere where I think that I can make a change. But on a subconscious level, and this is what you touched on at the very beginning, was 
we are trying to get you out of the environment that you came from, out of the environment that you, that you were used to and show you a different way. And if we allow your room to stay in that condition and the facility to stay in that condition, then whether you are aware of it on a conscious level or not, the, the path to change is not even being paved for you mm-hmm. because uh, I, I am just operating on autopilot right now. And this, my room looking like this is what I'm used to. How can I even think about doing something differently? And, and that's where it starts. That's why we have, for those of you who don't know, and this is probably true of any TC style program out there, the beginning of every single day, the first thing you do you clean your room before you hit the floor. Mm-hmm. It's the very first thing we ask you to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he's <clears throat> touching on all those points in there. In the adult facility, for years, so they would pay us just enough to provide treatment, but not enough to replenish furniture as it became needed. And as you're aware, we we just, for the first time in our history... It looks like we robbed Macy's. <laughs> um, ...made a significant investment and replaced the furniture in every room. Uh-huh. All the furniture, beds, dressers, wardrobes, the whole every, everything. And... I rarely walked into a room at the adult facility because there was one aspect of the furniture that bothered me to the core, but I knew, I knew that they had no, when I say they, I mean the clients. So, and so there was like a, there was like a cold war existing. So I would not walk in (laughs) this way. I wouldn't see it. And you would do you would do what you were doing because you had no other alternative but to do that. And I'm talking about them using crates yeah. for their shoes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And when the we got our delivery in August of our furniture, and it took up the whole backyard. You saw it when it came, right? And I said this this group that's in treatment right now is going to have a legacy of experiencing what others didn't, which is, you know, brand new, you know, stuff. You know yeah. what I mean? So it's exciting, it's new, and so on and so forth. And as I took the two uh, people that were going to be in charge of the process of going room by room and getting everything done, I said, under no circumstances do you allow any client, any room, a, any old furniture, oh, this is still good, we want to keep that, or those crates. Because I made sure that we bought wardrobe units, had enough room for them to store their sneakers and shoes in the bottom or on top. Yeah, right? yeah. So that was my instructions on Friday. They were going to start with a room on a particular, oh, on Saturday, this happened you know, a couple of weeks ago. Sure. And when I would come in the following week, I would check that first room and see how the new furniture looked in the room. And, you know, just as a person walking in, how would I experience that room? Yeah. And so when I opened the door and, you know, I didn't walk in the mean, I just opened the door and to see that new furniture in there was just so pleasing to the eyes after 20 years. 
And then I stepped into the room and I saw the damn crates. I screamed for the chief. <laughs> I'd have to admit, I screamed for the chief. I normally don't yell for the chief, but I did this time. And I asked for my two guys and I said, what are those crates doing in the room? What were my instructions specifically about the crates? You have brand spanking new cherry wood laminate covered furniture. And you have milk crates still in there. It's a fine, durable plastic, though. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why I told the guys don't let anyone swindle you, talk you, you know, connive you into keeping them because there's enough room for their shoes and stuff in the wardrobe units. Yeah. And each client has their own wardrobe units. Can you imagine that? At Swan Lake, five of us shared a bedroom and shared a closet. Right. So we were pleased to be able to do that because we weren't happy with the the condition of our furniture. We did the best we could in terms of what we had and and keep what we had as tight as we can keep it. But, man, it was – 10 years past, 15, at least 10 to 15 years past its time of replacement. Yeah. Okay, so I'm so glad that we were able to do that. So now I can actually walk into the room and the Cold War is over. So that first part of the memo is pretty much what I explained to the, the, the new staff in the staff meeting last week as to why the incidents that they were talking about are no longer important, that the fact that the facility is not getting cleaned properly is of much more importance about than any other incident that occurred. The second half of the memo, he speak, we talked, we mentioned, we, you heard us mention the data, the, the maintenance slash clinical contract. Mm-hmm. So in the second half of the memo, he specifically talks about that. The maintenance slash clinical clinical is that a Freudian slip? I said cynical. No, no, <laughs> we'll keep it going. Right. <laughs> maintenance slash clinical contract rising from the strong belief that clinical progress is intimately entwined with the well-being of the facility itself, mm-hmm. meaning that does do does does any of us believe that treatment can successfully take place if you're in a crack house. Right. And I know we throw that term around loosely when we say crack house, but I legitimately mean that. I mean, no, it's to paint the the right picture and you can't tease out the two is the thing. I mean, that's the, at least the question rhetorical or not that he's putting on the table. Right. You know, you, you can have a team of the best doctors in the world coming in to run therapeutic groups if when that group is over, they go back to a dirty room or a disgusting dinner table, what does it mean? Right. So the director must educate both staff and clients on the vital lines between clinical and house maintenance. Now, I like this line and the wording that he used. An assault on the attractiveness of the physical surroundings or a failure to contribute to the enhancement of the facility's attractiveness 
represents a grave clinical breakdown, which must be dealt with seriously. Hence my experience with that director 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah. The fact that he said he didn't do anything, the KFC soda cup sitting on top of the, the, the item has now been identified what it was. <laughs> the KFC soda cup sitting on top of our manicured bushes for 14 straight days was enough to send me over the edge. It's a long time for... for and uh... by the way, with all... With all due modesty, it took a lot for me not to remove that cup. I can imagine. In order to accomplish or to find out my further goal of whether or not the director of this facility was walking, actually walking past this cup every single day, four times a day, and not either himself removing it and finding out. Why isn't, how come this hasn't been, cha- you know, cleaned up during GI or morning facility run, whatever. Mm-hmm. He walks right past it. Casting no aspersions. Nice gentleman he was. And is. Yeah. But. And had many a strength. Yes. So. Again, an assault on the attractiveness of the physical surroundings or a failure to contribute to the enhancement of the facility's attractiveness represents a grave clinical breakdown, which must be dealt with seriously, which is what I was basically saying to the staff team, that we, there's nothing we can do right now until we get this GI thing straight. So one person said, well, what about, you know, and you know, a couple of the incidents had to do with drugs, Right. Okay. okay, so serious incident. I said, well, once we take care of this, it will actually help lead us into getting more information on that. Because one of the questions that was raised was, how in the world could this have happened and nobody's seen this person doing what they were doing if this happened on a Saturday during GI? Okay. Yep. And, of course, then it's revealed that, well, GI is not really happening the way it's supposed to happen, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Well, then that means we, we, we kind of are getting to the root of there's a root cause that's larger than the incidents. Because obviously, if GI is not happening the way it's supposed to, then people are seeing that, hey, you know, I can get away with this during, on Saturday. I, I can do this. So, yeah, it, and th- there's just so many tentacles to right, GI not right. happening that. It touches a lot of things, and then, and it's also, and this is not to speak derogatorily of any client, but any any client for any reason, whether they're new here or whatever their motivation is, they're having a, they're very observant, right? Anybody is going to be coming into a place scheming, for lack of a better term. If I wanted to get away with something, when would that time be? And Hold your thought. Mm-hmm. Let me just qualify that for our listeners. That's more prevalent today, and we're going to get to that because there's sure. a part of that that ties into another one of the Monsignor's philosophies. It's more prevalent today because most of our clients are coming out of the criminal justice system. Right. And what do you do while you're in jail? You know, most of the time you're just watching the guards and, you know, and scheming and what, what right. have you, right? Okay, continue. Yeah, uh-huh. and so – and then that speaks to the point. Well, Saturday, like we've already painted – 
a picture for the audience. This is a day during GI where movement is almost nonstop. And, and usually it, it can also be, it's a very uplifting and fun time. The radios are blaring throughout the house. People are cleaning, people are getting down, having a good time, but there's a lot of action and there's a lot of movement. And so the, the thought or the question from the host coming in thinking, how might this have happened during GI when this is the image we have in our head of what GI looks like. If you were to come on to the facility on a Saturday during GI, this is what you would experience. Uh, very reminiscent of like I, I an old say, school car wash. I always say Grand Central Station. Yeah, so right. Much tra- so much traffic and hustle and bustle. Right, exactly. And so if if for whatever reason there's a client who is thinking of a way to get over and this is what they observe on a Saturday, well, like you said, I've got my mark, so to speak. This is the perfect time for me to mm-hmm. do whatever it is I need to do. So he closes with this is the definition of what we call the basics, right? So when we notice that people are – the focus has changed from – getting my life together to other things. And there could be you know, many, 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 many other things other than just that one thing, which is what you should be focusing on. We, we don't even use the term tight house anymore mm. because very few people even know what that means. For those who do, it still sends a little chill down your spine. <laughs> and then what's interesting is just not to go off on a tangent, but it's it's kind of comical, the tight house thing. Because before it even gets to my ears that staff are think contemplating it. <laughs> you mean like current day? Even yeah, before it even gets to me that this is being contemplated and what have you. Right. I'm you hear it in the amongst the the peasants, the family. <laughs> yes. That. You know, you know, there's the rumor going around. Oh, we're going into a tight house. I'm like, how the hell did they hear about a tight house? Or the, how do they even yeah, know what a tight even house know what that is? is? Right, right. So I would tell the staff, I said, man, you guys can't keep a secret for nothing. If that's what y'all were talking about, right. y'all got a leak somewhere because that's not that. Yeah, that's supposed to be just sprung on them like out of nowhere. You know? Oh yeah, right. On a Friday night, right before requests, you know, boom. Anyway, the <laughs> but we call it now is getting back to basics. Now it's kind of like a whenever I get the call, say, "Hey, I want to do, a, I want to, you know, go go into a back to basics house." You know, in my mind, you know, I always say that I have to be aware of, you know, of what we're dealing with now. And I say, "I'm I say, well, why? How did we ever come out of back to basics? How did that ever get not be the focus?" Right. You know. So all right. So we get back to the basics, which means before and more important to anything else is what the memo states. The resident, the rooms, the facility, the grounds must always be in a state of pride and quality, which we call for short P&Q. Even my daughters know what P&Q is. Yeah. (laughs) Pride and quality. 
So, like I said, if someone were to ask me, what's the one thing that you take from the Monsignor in terms of his involvement and in just in the treatment program itself, not not in the, the larger picture of Daytop, but just in the treatment program, was his belief in that the facility must be spotless, and that is a reflection of what the what the staff are doing, how the clients feel, okay, and what that facility is about. And do I think when he went to the facilities as he was hugging, kissing, telling people he loved them and so on and so forth, Mm -hmm. that off to the side of his eye, he was scoping (laughs) things out? Yes, I do. Because obviously, as I tell people, when you become a staff person, you get onto the other side of the fence and you kind of see how the sausage is made a little bit. Yeah. And, you know, things aren't like what, like what they seem from the uh, sitting in the residence chair. <laughs> Absolutely not. And, you know, a couple of times you get to experience the Monsignor in a different setting, right? That's it. Uh, you don't get, you, you know, you, you get one view of him, you know, like I said, hugging and, you know. Just a sweet old man that love was you Christmas carols and, for. And, 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 and urging you onward in your recovery and so on and so forth. And behind the scenes, he's holding your feet to the fire. Yeah, holding your feet to the fire. So, the other reflection that I have is tied to his book title, and I don't hear it enough. So I every now and then have to throw it out there: how important it is that the extent family, not the day top, the OCG family, but the family of the person in in treatment, Mm -hmm. how vital and important that family is to the success of the person in treatment. Mm, And he coined the term or the phrase about Daytop being the family repair station because it wasn't just about the addict comes in, the addict receives treatment, the addict becomes a different person over a period of time, but the world outside, i.e. the family outside, remains the same. So you then come home back to your inner personal circle, intrapersonal circle. Nothing nothing has changed, but you've changed. And so if we don't so the the creation of the family association and having the parents come and having them have their own space to voice their own hurt, their own frustration, their own, you know, anger, their own pain mm-hmm. about what their loved one has experienced, what their loved ones have done and how it has affected them and et cetera, to me was masterful because to this day, to this day, can you think of any program that you're aware of that has a family association? No. I'm just thinking of the programs in our county that, yeah, I, know no, of, that no. I know intimately, and I know of none of them that head, have a no. family association. So to me, that was a masterful thought of that to increase the of the addict in treatment, you get the family involved the best that you can. 
And then, then we extended that meaning that, look, and we especially we did this for the adolescent. Look, if, you, if your parents are in jail, is there an auntie, an uncle, grandma, grandpa? Right. Great aunt, Somebody. great uncle, some, whomever that cares about you, loves you, that you talk to, write letters to, whatever. We want them. Bring them on. We need, we need to go pick them up. Let's bring them. Because we knew how important they that were going was, to yeah. be to the success of especially uh, children um, succeeding. But adults too, spouses, si- you know, siblings, ch- their children. Everyone has to be exposed, age appropriate, of course, to what, what's, the, what's the addict going through while they're in treatment? And what does it mean for me as the person on the outside going through treatment? So his moniker of, of the program being a family repair station, I think, was so far ahead of its, uh, its time. And we don't say it enough, but it comes up because of how much we deal with families. Right. You know, in terms of the, the addicts and treatment. And of course, we it's a shadow of of its uh of its prime, but we still have the family association, the shell of its former self. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's had its heyday, but it's still still going along. One of the other things that we did um was not not punishing the families for whatever was going on in the in the program at the time mm-hmm. so I may not get to the you know I may lose the privilege of leaving the house to go on a pass, but my family's not going to be punished from coming up to the facility to visit right 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 you know what I'm saying so those are some of the reflections. I have. Those are the two things for for some reason this week that stood out for me in thinking about the uh, the Monsignor as the 19th of October comes comes around uh, a week from tomorrow, which would be the official second anniversary of his passing. Huh. Uh, 19th of October. Yeah. Um. I never got to interact with him on a professional level, um, but I did. I did meet him, and it's funny what you say about the rounds he would make in the facilities and encouraging folks and just love and showering everyone with love and encouragement and just a very positive, um, friendly. Just doesn't seem to be a strong enough adjective to describe the presence that he he had about him that mm. you felt that this man was genuine and really cared about what he had started in the mission uh, but obviously yeah on, on the other side <laughs> the uh the corner of the eye the wondering why uh those what, what's the dust ball doing yeah in what's the, the dust ball there? doing in the corner over there um funny but don't think that wasn't going on. Right, right. But funny how it and it ties into something that's so true where and like you said with new employees too that that aren't from kind of a TC background that 
you know, they may understand the importance of, of keeping something clean, but not really to the, as extreme as we make it to be where kind of everything else needs to be put on the back burner or cease until we can get this accomplished. But how important that really is, because that's, that's how you start and end your day every day mm-hmm. in, in a program and the importance of what that means, the impact that that has on an individual. And I think even um, any individual out there, any adult can relate to, at the very least, the level of how coming home to a clean house or a clean mm-hmm. room or how you feel if you tidy up the house on a Sunday before your week starts, how you feel. And, and it translates to people, not just in programs, but when you're living environment, when your car, when things are clean and orderly, you feel better. You, some people report being more productive. They can mm-hmm. accomplish more. Your mind is clear. You can think more clearly. Um, and I think everybody has that experience when, you know, when the weekend comes around, if you tidy up the house or clean up the house or middle of the week or whenever, randomly, you're going to tighten up a section of the home you feel better. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's just amplified in a place like this because, you know, we're, we're really trying to blow up behaviors and patterns and things of that nature. And that's, that's where it starts. So you've actually answered one of the questions in our topic description about, are those things still relevant? Oh, today? absolutely. And, and absolutely. The answer is yes, they are still relevant today. We may have to get more creative today in today's mm-hmm. treatment environment to uh, keep it at the forefront, but it's absolutely just for the way you eloquently described it is uh, relevant. Entirely. Um, I think we also covered from our description about what are we doing and what are we missing. Um, I don't know. Maybe it was divine intervention sitting in that meeting. (laughs) It may have been. It brought up what we're missing. Uh, the led to what are we doing or what are we not doing right um <clears throat> the monsignor took over your used you as a vessel for a moment there in time so oh, no 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 pump the brakes right right there i don't even want the discussion to go any further so true and you know how you can be in a meeting and at least me i, I sometimes i might be reading something unrelated but listening with one ear um, but like when you have young children and they're, you know, they're, you, you might be in the kitchen there in the living room and, you know, you have, so you have one ear highly tuned to what's going on in there, mm-hmm. you know, and one ear focused on maybe something else, but that parent's air, that mother's air is so finely tuned, you know, that there are certain things that will cause a reaction and other things that just right. filters through other things. That's right. So um, it was that it was that type of experience was as I was sitting in the meeting. Yeah, that other things were filtering through. That made when, it through all I, the screen. When I heard that no GI or improper GI, boy, those satellites came out, started twirling around and <laughs> something else. <clears throat> yeah, it can't happen. That's where it needs to start. One of the things I do want to do in talking about the Monsignor is uh, email the gentleman who co-wrote or was a ghostwriter on his book. 
because I think I told you that I didn't real I, I I didn't realize who he was. I would see this guy on TV as a political commentator, and I never put the the name together until one day when I was just standing by the copy machine and we we have the book up on the wall, and I looked at the name, and and it shows you know co-authored by this guy from the you know, Newsday mm-hmm. and it's the same guy that's on the TV who's you know he says oh here's so and so from the Newsday yeah wow I was like wow that's that's the guy who you know wrote the book with yeah senior. yeah so <clears throat> he did do an article when the Monsignor oh, okay. passed so oh, wow yeah do you, among do many you have access to that or um I don't know if it's still up but it was, it was in the Newsday Newspaper, which is a you wouldn't know what the Newsday newspaper is. I'm just naming it to you, but it's it's it's, a, it's the most prominent newspaper on Long Island. Okay. You know, okay. Long Island, New York. Um, so it'd be in the records. It should be, um, depending on how long they keep their archives online. But um, the New York Times article is still up. Uh, okay. I, I pulled that up and still has that iconic picture of him. Yeah, on, yeah. On there, so we're still working for our listeners. We're still working on our um, – what name did I come up with it for? Not History Hall or something else I came up with, but a Hall of, hall of Memories, I okay. think is what it was. So, uh, you know, memorabilia, yeah. photos, things of that yeah. nature from, um, from, you know, Daytop as far back as that we have, all the way up through, you know, just like a timeline, sure, so to speak. Um, so – my assistant Elizabeth, she's in charge of collecting all of the stuff. Okay. And uh, eventually, we're going to designate a hall and put this stuff up in a timeline. And um, and to me, it's important. Every, you know, every August when we talk about our Independence Day, Independence from uh, from Daytop, <laughs> ironically. Um, but simultaneously, we talk about how it's important not to forget where we came from. Right. Of course. You know that we were birthed. Out of uh, out of daytop, and that is something that we will not forget, and and we will we keep. Um, I'll never forget Steve Winston when you know when the legalities were coming to a close of extricating mm-hmm. the two entities from each other, and so you know talking about you can keep every you know all the intellectual property except for the name, right, okay, right. So, and you know the intellectual properties are the things that we do. Yeah. You know, the treatment concepts and so on and so forth. So um, <clears throat> that's why we still talk about Daytop. Yeah, it is important. It is important to remember, like you said, and, remember and someone know asked where me, you came someone from. Someone asked me from the, uh, the county if we were ever going to change the sign in front of the facility because our signs say Our Common Ground, Inc., formerly Daytop, Daytop California. Yeah. And I said, no, we're never going to change the sign. Because that's our that's a that's the little reminder, yeah, a little uh, history there. Some, some people say, "Oh, what's 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 Daytop? What was Daytop, California?" And you could tell a story. Yeah, that's right. All right, we're past the top of the hour. I don't know if you got anything, any other further comments. I'm done with the memo. Um, and I will be reading it to the staff. Be- I told them last week that I'll be pulling it out and reading it to them. So beautiful. Our listeners got the first, the first, uh, the first official, the first reading. Okay, nice. 
Wonderful. No, it was good to to step back a little bit and and know that the legacy carries on. It's still and present to and think, important to this day. And but to think again, not to harbor this point, but to think what would make him write that memo at that point, two thousand six. It would have had to have been something. You know what I'm saying? To to remind major, yeah everybody in Daytop that hey this takes precedent over everything mm-hmm. therapy can't happen with a dirty facility right recovery can't take place in a dirty environment blah 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 right i won't know the answer to that i'll see if joe hennon knows oh perhaps he does yeah uh, he may he may i have an assignment <laughs> there you have it we'll try and report back to you guys uh when the answer is had if yep. we can obtain it yep Anyway, we see we do have some folks on hold who are looking to participate in the Recovery Support Time segment. We appreciate your patience and hope you've enjoyed the show to this point. We are going to take a quick commercial break, and we will get back to you on the other side.
Coming up next is OCG Radio's Recovery Support Time, where our hosts provide support and guidance for your recovery-related questions and issues. Recovery Support Time, where it's our time to help you. Okay, welcome back to Roach on Recovery. I'm waiting on you. (laughs) It's a a stalemate right now. I I was waiting to cut him off with it. Oh, you didn't play the long version. No, we went short version this time. Okay. We got some good ones? Yeah, we got some good ones. Some controversy, maybe. Oh, we love that. We welcome that well, on the show. Last week, last show was a couple of good ones. That's right. So, Peter, I can't understand the handwriting of the hometown. What can an addict do to be declared a former addict or not an addict at all? Can 20 to 30 years sober be classified as no longer an addict? That's part of his question. Yeah. <clears throat> so I always kick, it, kick, the, kick the can back to the person on this one. Of course I have my own yeah. a, a big picture opinion. And I'm not big on time frames either. Okay. But, but uh, I want to know what do you think of yourself as at a particular moment in time? Not what external forces might be saying and and traditional forces might be saying and yeah forget about the dogma and the cliches and everything else when you look in the mirror what do you see now if you see or and or the dogma is so strong (laughs) you look in the mirror and and or your participation (laughs) let's let's be fair let's say you know Let's say it, call it as it is, okay? If you're participating in the 12-step realm, okay, you know, you introduce yourself as, a, you know, my name is Joe, I'm an addict, you know, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Okay? And I, you have your own opinions, I have my opinion on that. Whenever someone raises this question, I first want to know what their own 
thought process is on how they view that before I then forced upon them, you know, what my thought process is. Because mm-hmm. what's more important is how do you view your own recovery? Through what lens are you viewing it? And like you said, you, you know how you, you dislike time. I don't like the, the, the time-oriented thing also either. No. Um, although I think, you know, I love it when people say, hey, I got my three-year chip or whatever because, you know, I mean, I love it. It's a point yeah. of pride for yeah, people. I yeah, I like that. Um, but I would, I would never advise, don't be sitting, you know, putting X's on the calendar, you know, and right. each day goes by. <laughs> right. Not to say some people don't do that. Whatever works, you know what I'm saying? Ultimately, that ultimately, ultimately, whatever works. That's true. I know people who go to AA meeting every day and they're 25 years sober. Yeah. If that's what you need to do, I'm whatever, all for whatever works. Well, whatever you got to do to if make it ask, happen. If you ask me my personal opinion on that, it might be different from that. But, you know, professionally, I'm saying whatever works for you, wonderful. Right. Um, but my standard answer to that has always been there's a definition of an addict. At a certain point, you have to ask yourself, and you can determine what that point of time is. I'm just saying at a certain point, you have to ask yourself – are you still the definition of an addict? Just start with that simple question. And whatever the answer is will then dictate what direction we go in. So he says, you know, so if I've been doing my thing 20 to 30 years sober, can I still be, you know, am I still classified? Can I be classified as no longer an addict? Well, there's no, you know, licensing authority that determines that you are officially no longer an addict or you are still an addict because, no, this is all on you and what you see and what you view when you look in the mirror. So, in my opinion, my humble opinion, if you're no longer, if you have been no, not, if you have been for a period of time, minimum, I say minimum two years, but not living the life of an addict, doing the things that addicts do, thinking the way addicts do, behaving the way addicts do, even if you actually aren't using. See that caveat? Hmm. Um, I do not recommend and don't see why a person would continue to refer to themselves as something that is viewed as negative by all of society. Right. That's my personal opinion. Oh, yeah, and I think we've it's actually been touched on the show several times, and mm-hmm. you and I are kind of in the same boat with that. Um, yeah, you don't you you're not mandated by the recovery police to label yourself the recovery as, authorities the recovery authorities to label yourself as anything. Uh, if you in I'm also a a big believer in do whatever works for you. If you believe there is something to be gained by or does something for you psychologically, internally, motivationally to go to meetings all the time and, Hey, I'm so-and-so I'm an addict and get the feedback and the response that you get there. And and that keeps you motivated to do the right thing, then go for it. And the fellowship. A lot of times people go because they like the fellowship. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that at all. I completely agree. However, however, I will talk to you to find out what your reasons are for going every single day. 
Sure, sure. Because I want to know, is there something you are, uh, you know, is there something else causing you to go every day that has not been tackled? Right, okay. Mm-hmm. So I'd want to know that. But next question. Janet, Daily City. What steps do you need to take in your recovery if you relapse? Mm. So, baseball analogy coming. You relapse, you make a bad decision, not a mistake. Difference between the two. But say, I made a mistake, I picked up. No, it wasn't a mistake. It was a bad decision. Yeah. Mistake is when you you not you don't know. You walking the line by children, right? You don't know what's you know, you, and, you, and you you make the best decision you think, and you find oh, it was the wrong one. Now I know I didn't know how to do better. You know right from wrong. You made a bad decision. So when you're playing in the baseball field and the ground ball, you're playing first base, and the ground ball is hit to you, and the ball goes between your legs. What pisses off the manager most, that, the, that you made an error, that the ball went between your legs, or that you turned around and said, oh, man, damn, and you just stood there while the guy's rounding first base on his way to second? Right. It's that you just stood there. So he got mad at you, upset at you because of what you did after the error, not that you made the error. Same analogy applies. Okay, you made a bad decision. You relapsed. Have we arrested, no pun intended, the relapse? If we have, good. Now let's dig into it. You need 24 hours to feel bad about it or 48 max, my rule. Go ahead. We'll talk after that. And then we're going to dig into it, analyze it, because we know that the relapse did not start the day that you actually used. So let's go back and find out where did this thing go sideways. And we're not looking backwards. In ter- for, for the sake of to make you feel bad. We're looking backwards in order to g- gather information and to educate ourselves and to learn bad decision so that we can see it co- in the future. We can see when we're coming around this same corner and instead of going left, go right. So there has to be an analysis an understanding of that analysis of what I did wrong, where I went wrong, what I needed to brush up on, and then, boom, you're right back out there again. No coddling, no safe haven, no escape. You got to go right back at it. Now, if it's evident that you were basically out there being a dry drunk, and we got they have to come up with a different term for people who aren't using alcohol, but there might be relapsing. at the bar drunk. hanging out, yeah, but that's the only term we know, right, or you know that, drink, no that's the uh, the dry drunk yeah. is the term used, so you know even though you may not have been using using, but you were doing all of the behaviors and think mm-hmm. thought processes of someone who you know i mean it was basically a matter of time. Right. Right. All it needed was the right spark. So the majority of people 
you know, it is what it is. The majority of people in their recovery process do experience a relapse more often in the early stages. Late stage, like someone who's been clean for five years, 10 years, are usually triggered by significant events. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Someone's been clean for 10 years and all of a sudden... Something, yeah, something, there was a major trigger. Yeah, yeah something happened. Like, Family what marriage. the hell happened? Yeah. So, <clears throat> but I like to build them, you know, I'm partial to Ford, so I'm going to use Ford. And I'm saying, I like to build them Ford. Stru- there Ford, you go. Okay. <laughs> that means I want you to be able to withstand... Any event, any trigger, any experience that you may encounter during your recovery process. Because the human body, the human body is built built to deal with it if we allow it to take place. If we allow our bodies to deal with it, as Felix Arroyo used to say, feel what you feel when you feel it. Allow your body to experience it. Don't try and stuff it. Don't try and, you know, you know, push it off to the side. Confront it head on. And you'll come out on the other side and you'll look behind you and you're like, wow, I, you know, it didn't kill me. Yeah. I didn't pass away from my feelings due to this experience that I've had. When people experience in their recovery process, either in the beginning, middle, or even, you know, long-term, you know, people go through some serious stuff. But it's not a reason or excuse, whichever not someone an used, excuse, yeah. to make that bad decision. And so one of the things we try and do during the treatment process is tr- when you're an addict, the instinct when – you know, pretty much when you're an addict, any reason you want, you can use to to go and use. I was going to say right. any reason is right. as good as any. It doesn't make it right. right. We want to change the instinct of if something happens, you know, good, bad, or ugly, that the instinct is not to go get high, but to deal with whatever the feelings Cope. are. Cope. Cope. Develop coping skills. Yep. There you go. Thank you, Mr. Co-host. Develop coping skills, no matter what. Mm-hmm. So we want to build you for tough Cope with anything, be stuck in an elevator with 16 people and 15 are smoking crack and you're the only one who's not. They don't control what you do. They control what you think. They don't control your behavior. You are in control. And so what? If you're stuck in an elevator with everyone smoking weed, it should not dictate what you do. That's right. And that's the reality. How about Toyota tough? No? No, I want to... American made, sorry. All right, let's go to the phones. I think I've blabbered on long enough on that one. Blame blabbermouth. Blame blabbermouth. There we go. Let's go to Nick from the terrible state of New Jersey. Oh. Nick, welcome to the show. It's the Garden State there, but anyway. Uh, question I got for you guys. Um, like the neural pathways or whatever in my brain, I want to know if they'll ever recover. I mean, I've been doing drugs for over 20 years. And if so, how long? Get another part to you. Um, well, actually, we can go with that one for now. How, uh, about how long does it take to repair the, the part of my brain that says no? 
is I know what like long-term opiate use. Um, that pathway between like the prefrontal cortex and the mandibular or something, that the yes and no pathway is shot. Um, doctors, doctors, is your is your, is your is your primary drug of abuse opiates? At this point, it's everything. But yes, it's been yeah heroin. Yes, sir. Okay, so today is your lucky day, Nick, <laughs> because. I always say opiate addicts have a leg up on everybody else. Do you want to know why? I would love to. Seventy-five percent of their addiction is physical. Twenty-five percent psychological. If you can get them to lick, overcome the physical aspect of it, which is what keeps people out there so long, is that physical thing, right? right and now right. today we're so fortunate because we have medications that can uh, help ease those withdrawals that people used to go through hardcore. Now today is a little bit different. So right. once you lick that physical side, however, you got to then deal with the psychological. Like I said, I always split it up, 75-25. But here's the kicker. No pun intended. I then say, if an opiate addict goes back to using drugs, they are the stupidest addict out there. <laughs> yeah, that's the kicker for sure. I've been doing this on and off for quite a while. Because There's a little monkey wrench in there too. I've, I got, I got, I got um, benzos and meth in there as well. Okay. Kind of complicates it a little bit. Well, when you ask about the brain question. Okay, okay. yeah, we'll stick to that. Before before methamphetamines hit the scene like it like it hit the scene big time in the last 15 years, especially on the West Coast and in the Midwest, okay? Mm-hmm. The major worry wasn't with long-term heroin use, it was with, it was with long-term cocaine use. Okay and the damage that that did in, in the brain and, and how it damaged the pleasure centers of people to the point that they, at, even after recovery, had difficult time experiencing pleasure. So okay. heroin hasn't been put in that category yet, to my knowledge. Okay? Okay, that's good. So I would say in that regard, you're safe. Right. Methamphetamine, you know, long-term users, and I consider long-term, you know, people who are who have used every day five years or more. Nah, that's not okay. Close then, so. Okay. So if you're not in that, are you are you not in that category? Yeah. Okay. So no, then no, you don't have to worry about that. Beautiful. All right. Wonderful. Let me tell you something. Like let, me, let me tell you something. That when I was in treatment. The best-looking people that I saw in treatment were the heroin addicts. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> I mean, they look, they look fantastic. I don't know what it was. I, did, I wasn't that educated at the time about heroin, but I was like, my goodness, these people don't look like they were on drugs. Yeah. I'm not talking about the heroin addicts that were living in the street. That's different. You know, the, the street yeah. will tear you up. Absolutely. But the but the ones that could afford their drugs and afford good quality and whatnot, they didn't look, they didn't look like drug addicts. 
And you guys had a little bit of arrogance to you too, also. A little <laughs> bit, of, be, a little bit, be, of, a little bit of better than again. also. So. <laughs> yeah. Got to be, so. got to be humble. Uh, I don't even know what that means. I'm working on it though. Okay, that's all you can do. <laughs> Work on it. That's it. All right, all right sir. sir. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Our New Jersey pal. That's right. All right, let's go to uh, Jason from Denver and Mr. Our producer's written The City That Peyton Built. Hola, senor. How are you? Good. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, my question, um, if I can go ahead and just shoot it off the, the hip here, is uh, I have a a problem with the criminal aspect of my whole thing because I've, I've been learning that things are in cycles, right? So you have the drug use and then like the, the, the breaking the law and whatnot and how it can be kind of a cycle. You break the law to get money to get your drugs and the gambling is in there too. Um, I've been handling my sobriety. Um, I mean, I'm so, I've been sober for like 160 days. But I'm recently started getting this craving out of nowhere to do the the criminal aspect of it, um, you know, stealing and trying to come up on money. Even though I have everything taken care of right now, um, I'm in a recovery place and I I don't need anything. But just the the need to go out and and do like criminal things and the things I used to do when I was high. Now that I'm sober, for some reason I still kind of have these. Daydreams that I want to go do that stuff again. All right, let me. Is there anything? Yeah, let me ask you a question. And your your line is staticky, but we still hear him good enough, Mr. Producer. Yeah. Okay. Um, how old are you? I'm 33. Okay, I'm I'm surprised at 33. If you just said 23, I would have said to you, well, that's your problem right there. You're 23, but you're 33. That should not be a problem because basically what you're describing is that. You still feel and, and, and get an exhilaration, a high off of committing these crimes, if you will. Am I on the right track? Well, I don't know, because I used to think that I was doing it out of necessity rather than the thrill, because I've been shoplifting since I was um, a poor high schooler, shoplifting and selling, like, little candies and stuff from the store and selling them at school so I could play video games with them. So it's not even really be a thrill anymore. It's more of just a, it's more of a job. I'm very, well, I used to think I, like to think I was calculated and whatever about it. So it wasn't really a thrill anymore. It was strictly like business almost. So that's All why right, it, so it wears me out that maybe I'm not over, or I, I don't understand oh, no. why it's coming out of nowhere either. Well, first of all, Jason, your thinking is corrupted still. Okay? So the question you need to ask yourself, you're asking us, but the answer actually lies within. We can only surmise. We can only speculate. Okay? You actually, you actually have the answer within you as to, well, why, why is this coming up for me at this moment in time? I'm thinking about these things, and I'm getting these feelings about these things right now. What's going on? What's happening? Why is it coming up? 
especially since I have no no need to do these things. I'm not trying to acquire drugs. I'm not trying to acquire things and etc. So why why is this coming up for me? Well, I don't really like what my gut is telling me. Well, that's where the answer lies, my friend. Whether you like it or not, that's where the answer lies. So why don't you enlighten us? Uh, well, deep down, I think I want to go back to the old life, I guess. If I'm going to be completely honest, I mean, I've been playing in the role for a while, but I and don't know. There's, I there's, nothing, there's nothing wrong with being completely honest because... What you're exposing, what you are exposing is a negative reservation that you have. And if you don't expose this negative reservation and talk about this negative reservation and dig into why it is that you might want to do this and continue to do this, etc., then I guarantee you, you will live it out. What, what do you mean by negative reservation? That... Negative reservation is something that you want to continue to do or continue to engage in while simultaneously trying to obtain your recovery. So you want to do something that is not in your best interest that may lead you back down that road to using again, but you think in your mind that, hey, you know what? I can still do – I can smoke maybe one joint a week or I can have maybe one drink or I can still go to this club or I can still hang out on this block. So you think you can do certain things, but your gut knows that those things will get me in trouble. Well, what if it's the opposite, that I, I want to go back to a full-blown life and then just do it right and not get in trouble this time because this is the first time? I mean, it's it's crazy, I know, but that's what, like, my daydreaming brain is, is telling me. Like, oh, you know, you can you, you just be smarter this time. You'll be all right, you know? Well, Don't the do first thing, thing that got you caught up in the first place. The first thing you got to stop doing is you're spending way too much time up in your head. The, the the answers, just like you just answered, when you came from your gut, the answers to what you just said also lie in your gut. Your head is just going to rationalize it for you, and before you know it, you're back out there. Yeah. Respond to what your gut is telling you and then confront that. Okay. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. My, I don't know, I, I, I feel like maybe there's a lot of just denial about responsibility for what really happened. Because it all kind of happened fast. I went into jail and then I went into the treatment and now... You know, I'm, I'm so far in, it's like I blinked and I'm halfway here, and yet for some reason I can still see myself glorifying the fun and not remembering then, what's then going Jason, on. I have no idea a, why I'm still thinking well, about it. We're going to tell, tell you the cold, hard truth of why okay. at this point, because you haven't hit bottom yet then. Yeah, that's what I'm afraid of, really, because I remember hearing that in my first couple okay. of weeks. And, uh, yeah, well, you haven't you haven't hit bottom, and you can avoid that experience. You can avoid it, but 
Some people have to actually live it out first. And I'm, and I'm hoping that that's not going to be your case, but that is what is coming up for you. For people who don't experience the dark, deep, deep well of the bottom of the pit that they can, you know, still see and, you know, think of fun and, and, and good times and, and not all of the negative stuff that has transpired in their life. And if you haven't experienced that yet, and you still think of good times, and you think that you can still go live those good times, then you haven't hit bottom yet, and careful that you don't live that out, especially when you have an opportunity not to live it out. So that's the best answer I can give you. Stay out of your head. That'd be more of a more of an actual decision rather than just feeding. Absolutely, it'll be a Whatever. decision. It's not going to be a mistake. Okay. All right, sir. Thank you very much. All right. You're welcome. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. I hope listening to that static wasn't too annoying for our listeners, but... No, no, no. At a certain point, I think we got to the point, which was... He knew. There was no question. He knew the answer. Yeah. Uh, It's like, you know, still thinking of fun in the sun and, and, and whatnot. If you if your connection to using is still glorious. Good memories. Yeah, good, yeah. good positive memories and fun and, you know, hanging out and just enjoying yourself like you're sitting on the beach, <laughs> then that's going to be the experience that you gravitate to. Hey, I could see. I like that. You yeah. Know, you know? But if you've hit bottom and experienced bottom for you, whatever that may have been. Is different for everybody, right? Okay, but that's what comes to your mind, yeah. And when you think about your experience, right? No, you took it exactly where it needed to go because I was on the same track in my head, thinking, well, you know, to to interject and say, well, you ought to go and do it then. You see what happens, you you know. uh, Roll roll the dice if you're not ready to give it up, and let's see if you feel the same way a, a year after. What do we call that? Taking out a research grant. Uh huh. That's, that's exactly right. If you think you still got it, then how are we doing on time, sir? Oh, we're good. I think we have approximately fifteen minutes. Okay, let's go to Andrea from the terrible, terrible, ugly <laughs> location of San Francisco, California. Hi. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you. Um, I'm in a behavioral modification co-ed program, which consists of like a total of 13 people, and I am the only female. Um, the environment that, like the house as a whole, has been really extremely negative, and um, I am finding it hard to keep my emotions in check, and I'm finding it hard to stay positive. And a lot of times lately, I've been I've been wanting to leave. And I've I've never you know I've been very serious about my recovery, but it's been tar- starting to take a toll on me. And I I guess my question is like how do I manage those feelings and how do I stay positive and optimistic in an environment that I feel is poison? All right, this may take up the rest of the uh, phone call time. <laughs> okay. All right, so the, f- the first thing I'm about to tell you, listen very carefully to. Okay. 
You're going to have to woof man up. Did you hear that? <laughs> okay. I said woman up. Okay. W-O-M-A-N. Woman up. Okay. Strength. The strength of that woman. You got to woman up. So there's a struggle going on between good and evil in your environment, and you're trying to get your recovery thing on, and it is wearing on you the negativity. Mm-hmm. Wow, what an excellent trial and tribulation for you to go through to, to harden your resolve of your recovery. Mm-hmm. Because if you can cope, deal with, facilitate that, nothing should come close to that outside. Right. Because this is something that you have to, it's in your face every day. You can't escape it. Right. So you have to (laughs) confront it. You have to deal with it. Mm -hmm. So it is excellent practice for you to practice how you're going to deal with not accepting behavior that you don't want to accept. Not accepting mm-hmm. people around you doing things that you would not want to accept when you're, when you're outside of the treatment right. environment. It is excellent practice. So when those feelings creep in, and I remind you they're only feelings, okay? Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean you have to respond to them. You can feel them. You can acknowledge them. You can talk about them, but you don't have to respond to them. But when they creep in, and they, you start thinking in your mind about, well, maybe I should just leave this environment. That's the time when you have to really woman up, take those feelings and stuff them in your back pocket, and take care of business. Now, let me tell you a short story. Okay. 20-something years ago, when our program had an adolescent program. It was a 39-bed facility, and there were only two females in that facility. Guess who ran that facility? The females. Guess who had the most power in that facility? The females. Use your power. Yeah, you know, and I get that, and I'm a, I'm a pretty strong woman, I and it's just it take I I guess it just takes its toll, you know. Like uh, you know, like when I just feel like the strengths of our house um, are outnumbered significantly, and so it, it just it makes it really hard. Good versus evil. So what mm-hmm. when it's imbalanced like that? When there is a couple of people trying to do good, and they're outnumbered by others who are trying to do evil. I'm just using that as an analogy. Good mm-hmm. versus evil. No, it's a good okay? analogy. Those two people that are trying to do good have to stand strong. They can't give up because mm-hmm. if they give up, then who's left to do good and right. hold down that fort? And, yes, it is very wearing. It is very tiring. It is very, you know, sometimes even overwhelming. Mm-hmm. But it is all excellent, excellent, I can't overstress it, excellent practice experiential practice for you that will serve you well on the outside. 
So I just need to trust in my environment. You need to trust in it. And it's mm-hmm. just, it's, and by the way, it's only an experience that you're mm-hmm. going through. And right. if you can survive that and learn how to cope with that, deal with that, and facilitate that whole thing, my goodness, when you get out there, you'll be unstoppable. Because mm-hmm. nothing will compare to that. Because remember, it's, you can't, you know, you, you're, you're, it's in your face every day. The evil side, so to speak, right? And so mm-hmm. because it's in your face every day, you're confronted with it constantly. So you constantly have to respond. You constantly have to push back. You constantly have to hold accountable. You constantly have to not accept. So mm-hmm. every day you're, you're forced to practice those things every single day. No, and I, I get that, and, um, and that's important to me. Um, it just sometimes I feel defeated a little. Um, you know, I, I, guess, I guess what I would like, I would, maybe you can answer this for me or give me some advice on um, how I cannot, how can I uh, prevent myself from being so emotional or um, react impulsively. Sometimes I wish, like, I, would, I wouldn't respond so quickly, like, or I get so frustrated that, you know, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm real quick-tempered, kind of. Or I just lack um, patience. So, you know, I just, sometimes I don't respond the way I would like to respond to people. That's all normal. That's all natural. <laughs> and, you know... Unfortunate for the person on the receiving end, sometimes if you're at your wit's end and, and they catch, you know, the wrong side of you at that moment in time, mm-hmm. that's just the way it is. Right. <laughs> just the way right. it is. Right. I, I, I hope you're reading between the lines, and I'll reference again, use your power. Okay. Use your power. Okay. All right. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. All right. Good night. Bye-bye. So there was something that I wanted to say, but I couldn't say because I knew you would edit, <laughs> cut and paste, and then use it against <laughs> me in the later show. Most likely. And maybe even email it to to the wife, <laughs> et cetera. Yes. Like, like how I've done you wrong. You certainly have. Um, but look. Women are very powerful in treatment. That is right. And especially now in her, in her describing her environment, she's, you know, gender-wise so outnumbered. I think she says she's the only one. Yes. Right. And so there's two ways you can t- take that or, or look at that, that I'll give you a, a different example using race. Sure. Okay. So when my daughters went to elementary school, right, mm-hmm. and the school was 99% Latino, okay. so they were the only black kids in the school, right? Now, their question to me, they, they didn't feel any ways about, you know, being that, uh, and I even said to them that people are going to be more interested in you because you are different. Right. Use that to your advantage, you're going to be the center of talk, center of attention because you look different, 
Your hair looks different. Mm-hmm. Everything about you is different. Right. Okay. And so rather than look at it as a negative thing, you put that positive you spin on flip it. it. Yeah. And use it to your advantage. Same for the women in treatment. Agreed. You're a minority in terms of numbers. But damn, if those two adolescent girls could control 37 males, adolescent males, mind you. Mm-hmm. Adolescent males. Did you hear me? Yeah. I said oh, adolescent that's, males. That's the kicker. Oh, okay. They can control the whole house. And fortunately, they were doing it in, in the context, of course, of, of 15 and 16-year-olds positive, in a positive way. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? They control the whole house. Yeah, I've, um, I've always told clients coming into our program, um, because, and we've actually touched on this, and I don't know if it was a whole episode, but we touched on it for quite a while, but how women are underrepresented in treatment, yes. generally speaking, um, that women have always made the best strengths of the house, the best chiefs, the best coordinators. I'm throwing out TC job titles mm. here, but essentially the, the managers of the facility, for lack of a better term, the best have always come from the, the women. Mm-hmm. So she can turn that into a positive. Positive. How much time, sir? Oh, we've got about four minutes. That was three, three to four minutes. Short story on one of our most famous female clients ever. We have time for that, absolutely. Talking about controlling the house. You'll know who I'm talking about when I start talking. Adolescent female. Um, who, let's say we had 24 clients at the time. Yeah. And let's say we had about 16 males. Right? Okay. A, a females? Yeah. All 16 males were attracted to her. Okay. Okay. And she played all 16 of them. Ah, in, yes. In order. The player, yes. Yes, indeed. And we stood idly by, entertained, of course, as we watched each male <laughs> I'm gonna... go, go down... Hey. Go down in flames. And let me tell you, thinking that they were going, they were running the game when oh, they were man. actually being played, and it was something to see as each it was like a domino, each oh, one yeah. fall and get so depressed. Oh, that's just what I was going to touch in on. Their emotions say. that they were, I'm almost wanting to split as a staff, as a as a frontline staff member at that time. There were uh, myself and one of my one of my favorite coworkers. He doesn't work with us anymore. More, but shout out to Mr. Cato. Mm-hmm. Uh, clean up on aisle two. Clean up on aisle <laughs> seven. I mean, we're we're doing one on one interventions. We got we got guys in the rooms crying, packing their stuff, and heartbroken. And oh yeah, oh yeah, that was that was something to behold indeed. In fact, and I, and I won't disclose too much, but I don't know if you heard, one of our current staff members ran into said client at a, there's like an event they do at the local park, like a barbecue get together for mm-hmm. recovery. Mm-hmm. And uh, the client was there um, and, and checked in and doing well. And The uh, 
client also is now a mother. Yes, by the way. I was I figured that might be giving away too much okay. information, so I withheld that. But, but yes, no, I was there I, with her I children. Think it's wonderful. I think it's wonderful because the, the, we can only judge our adolescent clients. I uh, used to like you got to look at like ten years later when they would say, you know, so what are the outcomes after they leave your program? So you can't. What do you mean outcomes? I said you can't look at them until they get to twenty two, twenty three right. years old. What is the outcome of or any sixteen year old going into seventeen years old? Right. Right. So um, if at age 22, 23, that they've matured out of their normal adolescent behavior and so on and so forth, yeah. then you would say you had a successful outcome. But if, it, measure if at 17, they're still, oh, yeah, I still drink a beer, I still smoke a joint, you can't measure anything because they're doing still dumb right. adolescent yeah, stuff. Yeah, you mean you're still 17. And we would even tell them, I know we're going off on another subject, that, look, don't try and be 30. You're you're 17 years old. Yeah, be a be you're, a kid. You're gonna make idiotic 17, 18, 19 year old decisions. Just don't make any life altering decisions. Right. Okay. And hopefully, when you get to 21, 22, 23, you come out on the other side and you're un, unscathed. Right. So, when we see them like that with child, 23 years old, 24, doing whatever, good. doing good, you know, makes your heart good smile. outcome. That's so, right. But um, she broke hearts. She was a heartbreaker. <laughs> She Indeed. was a heartbreaker. That and funny. that's not even the funniest part of the story. It's not even the funniest part of the story. You now have about 15 seconds. Oh, okay. Well, she, uh, you know, you would think as a heartbreaker that she was a girly girl. No, she was a street fighter. Yeah. Because she got into a fight in a facility with another girl who we thought was the opposite, was a street fighter, and she mopped the floor with her. I'll close with that. <laughs> that's it. And on that... We look forward to uh, greeting everybody two weeks from now with hopefully some information. If our host does his research, uh, answering some questions out there. Nevertheless, anyone who called in to participate in the Recovery Sport Time segment or called in just to listen to the show, we appreciate your doing so. We appreciate all the ongoing support. We wish everybody a safe couple of weeks and fun couple of weekends. And go Giants!
And walk amongst the stars at night I'd like to know the taste of honey in my life In my life Well, I've shared so many pain And I've played so many games Oh, but everyone finds the right way Somehow, somewhere, someday
That's our show for this evening. Thank you for listening. Be sure to listen to our next broadcast Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. Like us, friend us, and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash OCGWorkCA and on Twitter at OCGWorkCA. You can listen to podcasts of all our shows on iTunes under Roach on Recovery or on our Blog Talk Radio homepage. This has been a presentation of OCG Recovery Radio.